My name's Rory, I'm one of the rural hospital dogs at Thames Hospital and you're listening to the second edition of the Leaning Offence Post podcast. Unfortunately, Matilda couldn't join us today and so you're stuck with me. Today I'm joined by Marcus Renner, who's an intensivist at Dunedin Hospital Southern DHB and we discuss the approach to the sick COVID patient uh, with a deteriorating respiratory function. This complements some resources already on Leaning on Fence Posts uh, that are free to access, including a piece by Steve Willington from Ashburton on their thoughts on approaching a sick patient. Marcus makes reference to some partial pressures of uh, oxygen, and these are all in millimetres of mercury. I'll attach a calculator uh, to convert to KPA if required. We hope you find these podcasts useful. Please give feedback at Leaning on Fence Posts or rural.postgraduate at otago.ac.nz. It's rural.postgraduate.otago.ac.nz. Leaning on fence posts can be found at blogs.otago.ac.nz slash rural. That's blogs.otago.ac.nz slash rural. Tēnā Marcus. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. I know you've just finished uh, your, your night shift, um, but Marcus, could you uh, just introduce yourself and where you work and, and what your role is? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Rory. Uh, Marcus Runnels, my name. I've been with the intensive care team in Dunedin for the last 10 years. Uh, we do run quite a busy retrieval service here. Uh, from an ICU point of view, we run a 12-bedded ICU unit. We were actually anticipated to have 22 beds at this stage in time. Therefore, we're currently stuffed to 22 patients, but uh, we've only got 12 physical bed space because the second half opening of the new ICU was delayed. And uh, I'm saying that because we're currently in the uh, good position to have enough staffing for uh, hope for what we're experience or expecting to be an influx of, of patients. Um, and I'm also doing anesthetics, Rory, as, as you know, uh, so uh, part-time uh, doing anesthetics as well. Great. Thanks, Marcus. So, so Marcus, uh, I was uh, hoping to, to get your thoughts on um, uh, the deteriorating uh, patient with uh, COVID-19 and respiratory symptoms and, and yep. for our rural docs uh, and nurses out there to have a bit of an approach to, to managing uh, these patients. Mm-hmm. So, Marcus, could you tell us a bit about how the patient with COVID-19 typically deteriorates from um, a respiratory point of view? Yep. So uh, what we so the experience from the colleagues in China and, and, and Italy is that the intensivists there normally saw the COVID patients uh, day seven to ten into their illness, uh, and severe hypoxemic respiratory failure, myalgias, fever, cough. On the bloods, those patients all seem to have light, uh, lymphocytopenia, mild transaminitis. Uh, the lactate's not uh, markedly elevated in most of those patients. And uh, normally, uh, single organ dysfunction, so very few actually do have hypotension, uh, acute renal failure in the early stages of their disease, un- unless they get super infected. There were case reports from China that 30 to 40% of those patients had cardiomyopathy. Now, that doesn't seem to what the colleagues in Italy reported. They said pretty much all single organ failure, just ALDS, very seal, real ALDS. Sure. Thanks. And, and, and uh, on an arterial blood gas, we'd expect a, a type 1 respiratory failure uh, pattern. Yeah. Correct. Cool. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Marcus, uh, how would you advise us to, to escalate respiratory support in, in these patients? 
Yeah, so uh, of course, uh, oxygen supplementation will be uh, the number one step. And then the next big questions, where, which we've uh, asked ourselves within the team here, is whether those patients are for high-flow nasal cannulas or CPAP or bilevel ventilation. So the current advice is that uh, uh, stuff needs to be kept safe and uh, the aerosol-producing interventions are most likely high-flow nasal cannula, and, and, and there is some debate around that. But certainly CPAP, bilevel, intubations, uh, suctioning, um, nebulization uh, of those patients. So it's currently not advised to do those interventions unless you've got a negative pressure uh, room uh, and you're in full PPE with an N95 mask. Uh, how realistic that's going to be in a pandemic when you run out of negative pressure uh, rooms, uh, I can't tell you, but that is the current advice. Okay, so, so only, only doing those interventions in uh, negative pressure rooms with, with full N95 and, and uh, other standard uh, that, PPE. That, yeah, that's correct, Rory. The, uh, there is a bit of debate about the high-flow nasal cannulas. Uh, the, um, the, um, Surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, they've actually uh, said that high flow nasal, there is no evidence that high flow nasal cannulas are an aerosol producing uh, intervention. So there is some debate around that. So that seems to be the safest of any of the, the, uh, the options, you know, thinking about non invasive ventilatory support to introduce if you haven't got negative uh, pressure rooms available. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, Marcus. And and uh, I guess uh, I mean you can only really speak uh, probably for for Southern, but I mean the the lessons are probably applicable elsewhere. But in terms of using um, non-invasive ventilation in, in particular, when it's such a limited resource and 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 yeah. given the the staffing and the the facilities needed to to run it in these patients, mm-hmm. I mean. Do you have any advice about using the NIV as only a bridge to, to intubation and retrieval in, in rural hospitals, or uh, do you think it would be more wide use than that? Yeah, I think we'll probably have to see how many cases we're going to have as a community within uh, within New Zealand. Uh, if there is a pandemic, I'm, I'm certain that all the guidelines are going to go out the window, and uh, people are going to do what uh, what 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 is doable. Uh, the same thing might happen with the, you know, um, um, maximum amount of ventilatory support that you can offer as a as, as a country. Um, so CPAP uh, is probably reasonable. I would generally not advise to put a patient on bilevel ventilation. That is, if if a patient does need bilevel, it's probably an indication that uh, you should intubate the patient. Uh, at that stage, non-invasive and generally for type 1 respiratory failure, as you know, unless you've got heart failure linked with it or COPD, is not great for type 1 respiratory failure anyway. Uh, in influenza, I think 85% fail uh, non-invasive ventilation and end up on the on the ventilator. So as a, as a bridging strategy, I would probably say no. Um, I think uh, you then need to think about the most experienced person that could intubate that patient and, and go along the, the route sure. of invasive ventilation. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and if we were to start someone on, on CPAP, I mean, do you have uh, an idea about what sort of pressures we should be starting at? Well, I think uh, anything less than, than 10 is probably not reasonable to offer in those patients, and then you're going to li- be limited with pressures. So uh, I'd probably uh, recommend the PIPA 10 to, to yeah, start sure. out with right patients. Yeah. Yeah. 
And um, uh, then um, progressing on, uh, Marcus, uh, mm. could you just uh, give us your thoughts on indications for intubation uh, for these patients? Yeah. Well, I think if you've got a hypoxemic patient in front of you that's got a PaO2 over FiO2 ratio less than 200, uh, that being indication criteria, any any higher FiO2 greater than 60%, deep greater than 10, patient looks like he's, you know, working hard, uh, he's tiring, uh, increased vertical breathing, increased respiratory rate, all those are going to be indicators that that patient needs intubation. And they do deteriorate fairly quickly from what I've read from uh, from the reports. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. So, so just to be clear, a PaO2 to FiO2 uh, ratio is yeah. the, the, the PaO2 off the blood gas uh, to the, the what oxygen you're delivering the patient uh, as, a, as a fraction. So yeah, yeah. Is, like is, a, a reservoir bag would be about 0.8 or something, FiO2. Yeah. So, I mean, right? we, we classify the ALDSs in, in mild, uh, moderate and severe, at least that's the old classification system. Uh, and you're, uh, you're definitely severe in, in the cases with uh, you know, the ratio less than 150, so uh, 200 uh, reasonable cutoff that's uh, generally accepted in the ICU community. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Marcus, assuming that uh, the, the intubation goes well uh, mm-hmm. and we're wearing uh, all our, our PPE, so uh, yeah. can you just remind us what, what PPE you would yeah. recommend at, at this time? So that's actually the, the focus that we've spent most on at this uh, uh, stage with the stuff uh, that's going to be involved, the intensivist. Uh, we've trained, we've done videos. Uh, uh, so uh, head a uh, oval shoes or a wipeable shoes, which are probably what we're going to use in the ICU here. Uh, you're going to have a sterile gown. Uh, you're going to have a, a mask with a shield. You're going to have an N95 mask underneath that. And uh, we're going to double glove as well uh, for those patients. Mm-hmm. For the intubation itself, we're going to use a video laryngoscope uh, that gives you the options to stay a bit further away from the, from the patient's airway. Uh, so we're going to use that strategy primarily. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And, and I mean, some some rural places won't have uh, access to, to VL um, just, yeah, right. just at, yeah, at, yeah. at the moment. But so, but if you do, yeah, so, you'd recommend if you do have access to that, you'd recommend using video laryngoscopy yeah. as a first line. Yeah. 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 And uh, the recommendation is also as a sedation strategy, you know, you're, you're not going to enter the room uh, before you're in, in, in full PPE, of course, uh, staff safety is paramount uh, in, an, in a pandemic um, and other times as well, of course. Uh, but uh, after you've given the induction agent, uh, you're going to limit your efforts to bag mask ventilate that patient because that will be aerosol generating. And you're certainly going to make sure that you've given enough time for the muscle relaxant uh, to take its action that the patient's not going to cough. So uh, that you've got some safety measures in place to perform your intubation. Yeah. And, and, and Marcus, in, in terms of an RSI induction and, and paralysis strategy, what, what would you uh, uh, go with? What would, what would you reach off the door? Yeah. So the, the agreed strategy, and we've discussed that with our anesthetic colleagues yesterday, would be a fentanyl uh, ketamine induction and then milligram or 1.2 milligrams per kilogram of, of rocuronium. Uh, and then, as I said, video laryngoscope, uh, a tube, uh, maybe with a bougie loaded already, um, just therefore to limit uh, interventions. Yep. And try and maximize first-pass success. 
Yes, yeah. correct, yeah. Um, uh, and and with the timing of giving those drugs, Marcus, um, are you giving them all together? Are you giving um, the rocuronium a bit earlier than you usually would? I mean, you, you'd probably normally do it as a as a you know RSI type uh, um, induction, fentanyl and the ketamine together, uh, the rocuronium after the patient's drifted off to sleep. Uh, you'd want a, a minute, sixty seconds uh, to wait for the muscle. Rolexan to take its action, and, and I think it should be safe to perform the tricky elevation. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, Marcus. And I, mm-hmm. I think uh, a lot, uh, if not most, uh, rural hospital docs and, and, and teams would be using a, a similar um, cocktail for, for RSI for really. most other causes, uh, ketamine and rock your own. All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and then uh, a successful intubation and, and everyone's feeling a little bit better about things uh, and uh, yeah. patient transfers onto the uh, ventilator. Um, do you have yeah. any suggestions about initial ventilation strategy? Yeah. I mean, the patients are high, highly likely to be paralyzed and ventilated for a number of days. Uh, average in Italy was for the patients that benefited from from ventilatory support, which were roughly 50% of the patients. Uh, Their mean uh, day on the ventilator was 14 days. So uh, initially, we're trying to limit spontaneous breathing uh, because if you create a lot of negative inspiratory pressure, your uh, transpulmonary pressures are actually quite high. So we're keeping those patients uh, um, intubated, ventilated, sedated, and paralyzed uh, for a number of days these days. Uh, we agreed on SIMV volume control um, as a standard uh, ventilatory uh, setting just because it's easy. Everyone's familiar with it. Uh, we're going to need help from our anesthetic and uh, colleagues at some stage uh, if this should turn into the uh, scenarios that we've uh, seen in other countries happening. Um, so we would uh, put the patient on SIMV. Uh, you're going to target your saturation or your FI2 to a saturation of the low 90s to 92. Uh, certainly no higher than 96. Uh, you're going to start with a PEEP, a fifth of the FIO2. So let's say your FIO2 is 50%, then your PEEP setting would be 10. If you're on FIO2 of 100%, your PEEP would be somewhere in the range of 20. So a high PEEP strategy. You can accept quite high CO2 levels in those patients, just not to do further harm to the lungs. So we would accept PaCO2 levels in the 80s on an arterial blood gas, uh, and pH is down to 7.15. Uh, we would uh, probably advise for an I to uh, so inspiration to expiration ratio on the ventilator between one to one and a half to one to two, which is not physiological. Normally, uh, your expiration phases one to two or i to e is one to two so you've got to monitor for uh for for uh if you're shortening the the expiratory time that your patients uh, got enough time to uh to expire uh that you're not breath stacking and that you're not causing uh, a volume trauma in those patients so that would be the ventilation strategy keep your peak or your plateau pressures on the ventilator below 30 and the tidal volumes that we would normally set these days is somewhere between six and eight, uh, sometimes even as low as four. The the, the compliance of the lungs of, of the patients uh, reported from Italy and China was uh, surprisingly well. So they, they've got preserved compliance, elasticity, I should say, of, of, of the lung. So they haven't got particularly stiff lungs, but the gas exchange is massively impaired. 
Sure. Thanks, Marcus. And, yeah. And I guess if uh, um, we're talking uh, frequently and often to uh, your uh, receiving intensive care service uh, yeah, in this situation, yeah, and adjusting that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I was going to say that what we're trying to implement is that you've got a regional coordination centre. At least that's happening for the South Island. I'm aware of that. Uh, that you know, rural specialists can call a hotline more or less, and we are hoping to have intensivists there that can answer the phone, advise the rural colleagues, and those are going to be intensivists that can't contribute to the workforce within the hospitals, within the red stream, the COVID streams, because of age or immunosuppression. So we're trying to utilize their skills in a in a in a, in a way as I've just outlined. That's 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 awesome. That sounds like an excellent uh, resource for us uh, out in the sticks. Um, Marcus, could you uh, remind us how to troubleshoot a ventilator if things aren't going well, and and also and then perhaps uh, um, what changes are likely to be uh, needed to, to settings um, in terms of whether you change people or respiratory rate etc. Yeah, first. Yeah. So I guess our approach that we generally teach in the basic ICU courses or the the sessions that we've held with the anaesthetic colleagues that might. Uh, be introduced to the intensive care workforce is uh, the troubleshooting is three problems, high airway pressures, low airway pressures, or dyssynchrony with the ventilator. Uh, so to target uh, topic number one, high airway pressures, you're going to look for you know tra- tracheal tube problems, kinking, plugging with secretions. You're going to check that the bacterial filter is not clotted with blood or, or sputum. You're going to have a look at the, uh, at the circuit, and after you've ruled out those options uh, you could disconnect which we're not encouraging but you might need to to see whether the problem is actually the patient or the or the ventilator so uh, you know call for help paralyze the patient there's nothing wrong with that deep in sedation uh, um, and uh, the the problems that you could have with with high airway pressures either hyperdynamic or, or dynamic hyperinflation that's the scenario that I just said you know that you don't give enough expiration time to the patient that the patient does have bronchospasm, similar problem, plugging, or that the patients develop a, a tension pneumothorax with the interventions that I'm sure the colleagues will be familiar with, with decompression and then chest strain. The second problem would be low airway pressures. Uh, again, most common problem is actually a cuff leak uh, for that. So you're going to try to, well, you're checking that your pilot balloon is still going to be uh, um, um, patent. Dislodgement of the tube, particularly if you overinflate the cuff, the, the tube's got the tendency to, to migrate uh, uh, externally. You could have uh, circuit, circuit problems, um, of course, or uh, yeah, third problem then dyssynchrony, uh, patients fighting the ventilator. And uh, you'd probably then need more sedation and, and, and more paralysis of the patient once the patient's asleep. Um, if you're, you've also asked about, uh, you know, hypoxemia, uh, how to how to change the ventilator with that. Um, it will probably be about uh, peep titration once you've reached a certain FiO2 for those patients. I've talked about the tidal volumes. We're targeting six to eight uh, in an in an ideal setting. So uh, you know, if you're doing well and you can titrate the tidal volumes down that's great the less pressure the the less uh, the less uh, harm to the lungs um, at the end of the day um, 
but sometimes you'll find yourselves in a position where you're on FI2 of 90 or 100% and, and, and adequate beeps and the patient's still not oxygenating adequately. Rescue, rescue strategies for us in an ICU setting then. I mean, uh, in, the, in a rural center, you'd probably just wait until uh, the, the patient uh, will be transferred to ICU. Uh, is prone positioning as a recruitment strategy. Um, so uh, that's very effective in most of our patients. Uh, and then there is a debate on whether inhaled uh, pulmodilators are effective, uh, like it, Iloprost or inhaled milrinone or um, um, nitrous oxide. Um, we're not trying to nebulize those patients. We're not trying to break the circuit just because of the spray and the, and the staff exposure. So certainly not, or commonly not a strategy that's advised. Sure. Thanks, uh, yeah. Marcus. And and uh, I guess at this stage uh, we need. Well, we probably should have been thinking about it before. But uh, a, a sedation strategy uh, yeah. for these patients is propofol or midazolam or. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So current sedation strategies is uh, propofol and fentanyl, fentanyl. or morphine. Again, if you're going to have a high influx of patients, you might find yourself running out of propofol. Uh, again, then uh, it's going to be a midazolam, morphine, sedation strategy, I guess. Uh, yep. Similarly, in Italy, they've sedated with propofol and L-fentanyl, ran, ran out of L-fentanyl after a day. So, you know, all depends on the uh, on the condition of, of your emergency department. If you've got if you've got thirty ALDSs coming through your door in one night, normally what you see in two years' time, volume wise, uh, things are a bit different. And and uh, you, you mentioned uh, that we're trying to keep these patients uh, paralyzed for a few days. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So top up dose with further doses of uh, rocuronium or, or other. Paralyzed. Yeah, so keep them paralyzed if you see any movements of the patient or if the patient's fighting the ventilator for your time. In the intensive care units, we use train of four monitoring, so we uh, stimulate a peripheral nerve. Uh, you'd normally apply a series of, of, of four uh, um, stimulants to the, to the ulnar nerve, and you'd normally get a series of four twitches. If the patient's paralyzed fully, those twitches disappear, so we're, we're trying to target that to two twitches, just not to over-sedate because we, we know that the that the steroid-based uh, muscle relaxants particularly can cause critical illness, uh, neuropathy, and, and myopathy. So weakness uh, um, um, coming out of the ice tube. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess uh, you mentioned at the start about the cardiomyopathy and there's some debate about when that, that tends to happen. Yeah. And hopefully we wouldn't be seeing uh, these patients get into trouble hemodynamically. But, but could you just uh, a few words on, on that and approach to managing that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think it's unlikely for you to see a lot of uh, septic cardiomyopathy. Um, the colleagues in, in China obviously saw that towards the end of the... Uh, um, ICU stays in the outpatient pretty much before they 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 passed away. Um, in regards to fluid management, shock management, uh, targeting mean arterial pressures, I guess the advice would be to target a mean arterial pressure somewhere between 60 and 65. Uh, initially, you would give some fluid. The overall strategy is going to be fluid restrictive, um, just to keep the lungs as dry as possible, but on the other hand, not to keep the patients hypovolemic and, uh, and, and risk acute renal failure. 
Um, you know, we've got all sorts of devices in ICU, as, as you know, to, to measure intravascular volumes and extravascular volume, and we do echocardiography and, 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 and whatnot. Uh, I guess in the periphery, target mean arterial pressures, use some phenylephrine or noradrenaline as your first line agent. You can run those peripherally. There is no need to give uh, uh, um, or to place central lines, place the patient at risk for a pneumothorax or anything like that for patients that are not experienced. I think there is enough ED literature out there that has shown that you can even run noradrenaline on a, on a big uh, endocubital fossa peripheral line up to maybe 0.1 or 0.2 mics per kilogram per minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I think that's pretty pretty well established now. So yeah. that's good. Yeah. Um, and then uh, if if a, a patient with COVID uh, who would is being uh, actively managed uh, and would be for escalation has a, a cardiac arrest. Um, yeah. Is or what would your advice be? Is is there much point uh, continuing on with the resuscitative uh, efforts, or is the the writing well and truly on the wall? Yes, uh, I, I I think uh, we're most likely going to progress to to seeing more COVID cases and I mean you know about the overall outcome uh, of resuscitation in 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 well patients well patients uh, if a COVID patient arrests due to hypoxemia that will be the the most common reason for them to arrest I think uh, um, you could argue that resuscitation efforts are not indicated particularly. Um, you'd need to be in full PPE for, for that patient. Uh, so uh, I think there will be, there, there has been discussion within the hospital on whether, you know, on the wards in COVID times, whether you should actually reverse the DNR orders that you are for resuscitation rather than the other way around. So that's how extreme the thinking here in the hospital already is. Tells You know, it indicates how, how, uh, how the thinking reverses sure. in times like now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but uh, leaving that aside, we've we've got a yeah. a, 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 a uh, let's say a non-intubated patient, but a, a patient who's yeah. too unwell to travel by road with with a, a nurse escort. Um, mm-hmm. And and I guess again that the, the southern region is going to be your kind of area that you can mostly talk to. But just yes. yeah. issues around uh, retrieval with uh, for these patients. We're talking about an, an unintubated patient uh, to start with, Marcus. Yeah, um, I mean St John's has published guidelines regarding the management of the patients that are going to be coming to hospitals by road transfer. Again, the advice for the patient is a surgical mask uh, and for staff to keep the distance as much as possible and for full uh, PPE. Similarly, really for the, uh, for the air uh, medical side of things, again, the, uh, there is a, a national guideline. The experts met uh, a week or so ago. Uh, they've released uh, guidelines regarding the transfer of those patients. They can be found on the Ministry uh, of Health website. Uh, again, uh, you know, we probably, if we pick up a patient by helicopter, uh, hope the patient's most likely going to be in a condition where he, he would need intubation or would have been intubated uh, at, at the rural center. And uh, of course, if the, if the patient's intubated and you don't uh, disconnect your, your circuit, uh, stuff is fairly safe. Uh, as you can imagine, there is a lot of concern from the pilots and the paramedics as well uh, being exposed to those patients, but the guidelines have been released uh, regarding that. Okay, cool. Yeah. 
Um, and, then, and then I guess uh, uh, the discussion kind of moves on to uh, what happens when we run out of space uh, and in yeah. intensive care and, and run out of ventilators. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, do you know what the, the New Zealand approach to this is, uh, Marcus? And, uh, yeah, so Craig, Craig Carr, our clinical leader, he's uh, involved uh, on a national uh, front uh, and also locally as well. Uh, there is now a national website uh, up and running that indicates how many beds each uh, health board has got available and how many ventilators, how much ICU and HDU capacity. So that's a big step forward, actually. Um, uh, there is probably 180 ICU beds in New Zealand at baseline. And uh, I think the health minister said the other day that you, that could be tripled. Uh, so from an ICU point of view here, and that's really what we're doing at the moment, we're ramping up the capacity, uh, planning's gone, you know, what are we going to do in the intensive care unit once we've got more COVID cases? Uh, so we are thinking, about, oh, we, we've, we're uh, currently uh, um, taking possession of the gastroenterology, gastroenterology suite here in Dunedin, where we could have an eight normal non-COVID ICU patients that are going to be looked after by an intensivist, but with the help of the anesthetist. And uh, we've got the then 12 ICU beds here in the unit in Dunedin in stage one of the ICU rebuild. Uh, the uh, work has progressed in the stage two of the ICU rebuild. So that's been prioritized. So there's another 10 bits. And if we need to open pot number Number uh, four, we would then go to PECU, to the post-anesthetic recovery area or even theater. So that does free up uh, a certain amount of ventilatory capacity and we can only hope and, and pray that the public health measures you know, are good enough to prevent uh, running running out of, of ventilatory yeah, sure. yeah, but I, I guess there's some uh, concern within the, the, the rural communities that... Um, uh, a, a younger, fitter patient might get not get the treatment. Uh, this uh, perhaps a more elderly patient who presents to a, a base hospital would, would All right. get. Okay. Um, again, uh, you know, if we're getting into the topic of triage, uh, our our most difficult uh, topic to deal with as as intensivist. Uh, again, Craig Carr as the uh, chair of of Enzix, uh, he's brought together. A group of people to develop a triage tool uh, and uh, so that was four clinical directors of intensive care units with an experience of more than 110 years of, of ICU uh, patient representatives uh, Mari and Pacifica health representatives Mari health advocates uh, good mix of females and males um, and uh, clinical nurse specialists, uh, nurses, infectious disease specialists, uh, a NICU consultant, pediatric consultant. Uh, they've all come together and, 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 and further developed the tools that have been applied with the influenza uh, uh, um, pandemics um, in, in the past. There, there have been tools around for uh, um, intensivists already at that stage. And uh, they're currently in the process of, of developing a tool uh, that it's not all based on age, uh, which is not a good, you know, triage tool uh, as a sole parameter. Uh, but there is physiological parameters. There is, uh, you know, pre-morbidities, age, body mass index, 
you know, the likelihood to benefit uh, in, in, in general, um, burden of comorbidities, of course, functional status, and uh, pro-equity considerations as well. So quite a, quite a holistic tool, really, to use that. Uh, and I think uh, there cannot be a difference between someone that lives rural or uh, or metropolitan. I, I don't yeah. think that is, uh, will be the case. Agreed. Agreed. And, and uh, yeah, cool. Um, and and uh, in in the event that it comes comes to that, and and you're having the the kind of discussion. So uh, you've got a patient who's not been accepted for for escalation, uh, yeah. and um, there to remain with you. And uh, any tips on on approaching that conversation with a patient in their whanau? Uh, yeah, I mean, Rory, you know, we you would have uh, experienced the team here uh, when you were with us in the intensive care unit, and we're in this all together. I guess uh, it's an open approach uh, to that. We're always honest with our patients and, and families. Uh, so open discussions with, with, with all of them. Uh, it is a difficult topic, uh, but I guess the, 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 the more transparent you, uh, you make the process, the, the less uh, issue you're going to have with the, with the families. Great, thanks, Marcus. And yep. and finally, before we let you go, to back to uh, have a nap before uh, yeah. <laughs> carrying on. Marcus was on nights last night. Um, anything else you you think uh, useful tips or hints or messages for for yeah. rural hospital docs, GPs, clinical nurses? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think first of all, as 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 we've advised our medical colleagues as well, uh, you know, in in times like this, really identify the patients that are prepared to go down the route of uh, having an ICU stay for two or three weeks. And you'll, you might be surprised, actually, there'll be a few patients that are going to tell you, nope, I've, uh, I've, uh, I've, I've lived the full, full life. I would not like to be on a ventilator for two or three weeks. So try to, to screen the patients that want uh, intensive care support. Try to screen the patients that are going to benefit from, from ICU. Um, I guess I can reassure all rural colleagues that we've done our share to, to maintain the service as well as we can, uh, and also the retrieval service for as long as we can. Uh, I think we've done our work in here to, to prepare ourselves for as much as possible. I can only help, hope that the supply chains with PPE are, uh, are going to be in, in place for a long time. Uh, otherwise, we've uh, purchased some... Uh, some uh, some multi-use reusable protective uh, um, equipment as well, and uh, you know everyone's motivated here in in the hospital to to do their best, and we'll see whether we uh, uh, we can weigh off the evils uh, with the interventions that have been done on a on a political uh, uh, um, surface already. So we can only hope that uh, they they show their their action. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Marcus. That was really, really useful. And uh, All right. make sure you keep yourself and, and your your whānau safe and All right. yeah, have a break when, when you're not 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 on the floor. Absolutely. Same same to everyone out there uh, as well. All right. Good one. Thanks, Marcus. Okay. Thank you, Rory. Cheers.